Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at chapter 23 today. And if you do not have a Bible, there is a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. And you can open that Bible up and turn it to page 10. Page 10 in the paperback Bible. Just a couple quick things to mention here before we get started. Um, First of all, the Lifeline email went out today announcing um, Elmcroft coming up on Tuesday night. Actually, that's not going to happen. Because of COVID, uh, Elmcroft has told us that they are going to um, temporarily halt our ministry there. Um, maybe you don't know, but we have been allowed back into the, the uh, assisted living center there over the last few months. It's been good to be back, uh, but now they're pausing that ministry again for a time. Uh, by the way, Elmcroft has been renamed. It's called Muncie Estates now. So when we say Muncie Estates in the future, we're talking about our Elmcroft ministry. Uh, anyway, no Elmcroft, no Muncie Estates ministry on Tuesday night of this week. Also, quick reminder that uh, <coughs> annual meeting is coming up. Not tomorrow night, but a week from Monday. Annual meeting, 7 o'clock here in the sanctuary. So again, uh, very important for members to attend, but all are welcome. Uh, Joe Blaylock, John Connor, on the ballot to serve in the office of elder. We had a Q&A session this morning with both of them. They both did an excellent job. Um, if you weren't able to be there and you want to know more information about these guys, we've got info sheets uh, available at the Welcome Center. So you can grab those so that you can vote knowledgeably next Monday night if you are a member. You do have to be a member of the church to vote for officers. So again, next Monday night, 7 o'clock, annual meeting. Genesis chapter 23. We are continuing here through our series on uh, the life of Abraham. Uh, A lot of you, I think here, or some of you anyway, in this congregation know Ray and Carol Unger, or knew them, um, Ray was uh, kind of a, a well-known individual in our community, um, started Accutech. We have some people here at the church who work at Accutech, and Ray and Carol <coughs> were parents of Adam Unger. Adam and his family were members here on a couple of different occasions, actually, and uh, very sadly, Ray and Carol both passed away, one in November and one in uh, December um, of just uh, last month, and um, Uh, Just a very sad thing. Both of them went into the hospital with COVID and a number of complications developed and they both passed away. Their funeral was actually January 5th and uh, I was able to go to the funeral and I have to say that it was uh, just an extraordinarily beautiful event in in a lot of ways. It was very sad, of course, but very powerful in a lot of ways. There was uh, perhaps in all the funerals I've been to, I think it might have been the longest line of people waiting to console the family. Uh, took a long time to wait in that line. Uh, the gospel just went forth with just such clarity, such power during that service. No one left with any mistakes about the gospel and what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And another beautiful part of that um, <clears throat> funeral was just the, the beautiful things that were said about Ray and Carol, about their character, about their generosity, about their faith, about their service to the church, about their love for their children and grandchildren. Uh, On and on it went. 
and I couldn't help but ask myself after that funeral was over, I wonder what people are going to say about me at my funeral. Now, maybe that's kind of a selfish question to ask. I don't know. It kind of feels that way, but I'm guessing that probably a lot of people were asking that question of themselves. What are people going to say about me? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever thought about that? What are people going to say about you at your funeral? It's something worth reflecting on, isn't it? What are they going to remember about you? What is it that's going to jump to mind about you? What, what will be your legacy in the hearts and minds of the people who are closest to you? One day that's going to be revealed. Our text today is uh, Genesis 23. As I've said, we're going through the sermon, Life of Abraham. And what we have here in Genesis 23 is the very first description of a death and a burial in all of human history. And the deceased person in this case is Sarah, Abraham's wife. We've been hearing a lot about Abraham and Sarah, more about Abraham than Sarah, but we've been learning some things about Sarah. And um, Sarah passes away. Abraham and Sarah, we believe, just looking at the scriptures, how this has unfolded, were married probably 100 years. 100 years. And you can remember various things that they went through. They were called to leave Ur of the Chaldeans together, and off they went in response to God's call. They received these wonderful promises from God about these things that were going to happen, and they joined together in following the Lord. They were recipients of God's covenant promises. God entered into covenant with them. They welcomed angels into their home together, fed them, and were hospitable to them. They saw an unbelievable display of the wrath of God when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And after a long period of time, waiting and waiting and waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled, the day finally came and Sarah gave birth to the promised child and they rejoiced and enjoyed that together. They've been through so much, so many victories, so many setbacks, so many ups and downs, and now the day has come and Abraham has to say goodbye. And so that's the passage we're going to read. I'm going to read this entire chapter, 23. If you would please stand, if you're able, Genesis 23, and I'll read this verses 1 through 20. Genesis 23, verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let me give it Let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites and all who went in at the gate of his city. 
No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. God in heaven, please send your spirit to open our hearts and open our minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So let's consider three things here from this passage about the death of Sarah. Very simply, no surprise, first thing we want to consider is the death of Sarah. How is this explained? What do we learn from the death of Sarah? We see at the very beginning of the chapter, verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. Now, at first glance, that might strike you as a little bit odd. Really, 127 years? That seems like a long life. I think in a past sermon I mentioned there was a woman in France who lived to be 122 years just in uh, the last century, so perhaps not terribly unusual, but fairly unique, 127 years. Maybe you remember that back in Genesis chapter 5, we uh, considered the fact that a lot of people in the very early stages of human history lived for a very, very long time. There's a guy named Methuselah, according to Genesis 5.27, that lived 969 years. Um, so, for various reasons, there's a lot of theories about why people lived longer then than they do now, but at least by Moses' time, which would have been about 800 or so years after Abraham's time, we see that the lifespans began to kind of reduce to what we are accustomed to today. Psalm 90, verse 10, talks about human life going between 70 and 80 years, which is pretty much what we're used to today. But in any case, Sarah lives a long and fruitful life, 127 years. But in verse 2, we find uh, the bad news, and we read it this way, and Sarah died. Now, that's written in that particular way, perhaps to bring to mind what we learned all the way back in Genesis 5. Again, Genesis 5, maybe you remember, that's the chapter where all these different people are listed, and it just keeps saying one after another, and he died, and he died, and he died, over and over again. Adam lived 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 905 years, and he died. And now we see Sarah has lived 127 years, and she died. This is the only woman 
uh, in the scriptures whose lifespan we are given. And the point in Genesis 5, and I think what Moses is reminding us of here at the beginning of Genesis chapter 23, is that no matter how long you live, you're going to die. And no matter how healthy you are right now, no matter how smart you are, no matter how many degrees that you have, no matter how much money you have, no matter what exciting plans you have, no matter how many friends you have, no matter how beautiful you are, you're going to die. Even if you are the wife of the patriarch of Israel, even if you're Abraham's wife, even that does not exempt a person from death. You and I are going to die. And I know at one point you might think, well, that's obvious. Thanks for, you know, Captain Obvious for telling me what I already know. But the fact is you probably don't really think about it that much. Most of us don't. We don't like thinking about death, but the scriptures bring to our memory the reality of death quite frequently. Psalm 49, for he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Everything you're working for and gathering up in your life one day, it's going to be handed to somebody else. Hebrews 9 tells us this, it is appointed for man, men and women to die once and after that comes judgment. And that perhaps is what makes us most uncomfortable about death, right? Whether we believe in the Bible or not, we have this instinctive knowledge that we're going to be held accountable for who we have been throughout our lives, for our character and the decisions that we've made. So is this kind of a morbid thing to talk about today? Maybe so. I was a little concerned about talking to the children about this topic. Yeah, it's kind of a morbid topic, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it doesn't mean that we shouldn't discuss it, think about it, reflect upon it. People have different ways of coping with death as they think ahead about death. Some people just joke about it, you know, it's just something to be funny about. Like Woody Allen famously said, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. That's kind of funny. (laughs) You know, so I'm not saying that's necessarily his full way of dealing with death, but that's the way a lot of us deal with it. They just kind of joke about it, just make make it something light laugh about it. Some of us rationalize it, like Mark Twain, who said, well, I was dead a billion years before I was born. Why should I fear being dead a billion years after I die? Like, well, okay, nice try, but, you know, you weren't really dead a billion years before you were born. You didn't exist. You're dead after you live this life. You're not dead before that. You don't exist. And by being dead or facing death, again, we have this realization, this instinct that we're going to be held accountable. That's what makes what happens after death something that is troublesome to many of us. Some people just think about it very realistically. There are those among us who think about death a lot. And sometimes when you just think through the logical consequences of the reality of our death, it can lead to troubling conclusions like Leo Tolstoy, very famous Russian writer, War and Peace, he said this, he he almost got close to, to suicide as he was reflecting on the reality of death and said this, why should I wish for anything or do anything? Or to put it still differently, is there any meaning in my life that will not be destroyed by my inevitably approaching death? Have you ever thought about that? If death is the end, absolutely the end, and there is nothing beyond the grave, how can you find any ultimate meaning in anything that you are doing 
in your life right now? What does it matter what you do? Why should you wish or pursue your dreams or, or, or do anything? Because, yeah, maybe you can make some kind of small little private meaning out of it right now in your tiny little life. But in the context of the whole sweep of human history and everything that everybody has lived in, in the whole uh, enormous continuum of the years that have gone by, it basically means nothing. And as people reflect on this, they get despairing. A guy I quote quite often is a guy named Luke Ferry at the University of Paris, philosophy professor, and he, he says this, what do we truly desire above all else? To be understood, to be loved, not to be alone, not to be separated from our loved ones. In short, what we truly desire is not to die and not to have them die on us. That's, that's what we are really longing for. We don't want to die. Who wants to die? We like life. We want to live. But we know the end is coming. And for many of us, it can lead to despair. Some of us just kind of just throw it out. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. It's a very big deal. In fact, the argument could be made that the day of your death is the most important day of your life. Are you ready for it? Are you prepared? The Christian account of death is simply this, that death is a penalty. It's something that God has imposed upon the human race as a result of the fact that we have rebelled against him. We've sinned against him. We've lived as if he doesn't exist. We don't give him thanks. We don't seek his will. We love ourselves more than we love him. We think the world revolves around us and not around him. That's sin. And because of the sins in our hearts and the sins that we commit, we die. The wages of sin is death, the scripture makes very clearly. Death is not natural. God, God's original intent for Adam and Eve is that they would live forever if they would obey his will, but they refused to do that. They failed, and so the penalty of death enters in. It's an intrusion. It's a tragedy. So a big part of your life and my life, friends, is not to ignore death and not to laugh about it and not to dismiss it, but to prepare for it. There's only one hope, friends, in the face of death. The only hope that we can have is that someone, somewhere, and somehow can overcome it. We're not relying on science to do that. Science is not going to give us the answer for eternal life. But there is someone who has done it, and his name is Jesus Christ. Romans 6.9 tells us this. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. If for no other reason, friends, that ought to draw you to Jesus. There is hope beyond the grave. Why wouldn't you want that? Hope beyond the grave. Because we have a Savior who died, is risen, and will never die again. There's no other hope in any philosophy or any worldview or religion like what is offered to you in the gospel. A Savior who was dead and now lives. And so the death of Sarah just causes us to reflect on that. She lived 127 years. She was a very important person in the scriptures. Overall, a godly woman, a sinful woman, but a godly woman overall, mentioned in Hebrews 11 for her example of faith, and yet she died. And so her death 
leads us to the second thing to consider today, which is the mourning of Abraham. So one task we have in this life is facing our own death, but another task we often deal with in life is dealing with the the death of others. Uh, The deaths of those in our lives who are close to us, who we love, and that's what's going on with Abraham. Verse 2, after it is mentioned that Sarah died at the land of Canaan, then it says, Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. He went in to mourn. He cried. He wept. He shed tears of grief because his wife was gone. Just imagine the heartache that Abraham must have been experiencing just that first night with the empty bed and not having his wife next to him. Now going to every social event alone. His wife was always with him, not anymore. Seeing Sarah's clothes hanging in the closet, if that's the way it was. Just seeing the things that belong to her that are still there in his house, but Sarah's not. What do you say to a person like that? How do you care for a person dealing with the loss of a spouse? I want to recommend a book to you. Um, Nancy Guthrie wrote this book, What Grieving People Wish You Knew. It's important to be there for grieving people. It's also important to not make it worse by the things that we sometimes say with good intentions. Uh, This is a super helpful book, super helpful. I would highly recommend this to you so that you know how to care well for those who are mourning. But that's Abraham here. He's, he's mourning the loss of his wife. But I want to suggest, friends, that although Abraham is mourning, I don't think he's mourning in despair. I don't think Abraham is without hope in this situation. And the reason why is because of what we know about how Abraham dealt with the death of Isaac or the uh, intended death or the, 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 the possible death of Isaac. Remember when God called Abraham to offer up Isaac on the altar, Hebrews 11 tells us this, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac and he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So that was one of the reasons why Abraham was able to offer up Isaac is because of this confidence in the resurrection. And I would suggest that Abraham very likely felt the same thing about Sarah. If God could raise Isaac from the dead, God could raise Sarah from the dead. And so Abraham mourns, he weeps, but he has the hope of the resurrection. And so it gives us this real peculiar balance that we as Christians seek to strike in the face of death. That is, on the one hand, we mourn. And you should mourn when you lose loved ones. You should cry, you should weep. Of course, we all deal with it differently based on our personalities, but it's certainly totally, completely acceptable to mourn and grieve like you've never done before. Even Jesus mourned and wept. Remember when Lazarus died and it says Jesus wept. The Son of God, the creator of the universe in flesh, weeping, heart full of sorrow at the death of his friend. If Jesus wept, so you and I can weep. Death breaks our hearts. We don't have to cover up the pain. We don't have to give this impression that we're strong and we don't cry. You don't have to do that. Mourn, weep, cry. It's appropriate in the face of death. But then at the same time, we we don't mourn, grieve, and cry like others. We don't mourn, grieve, and cry like unbelievers because we have hope, right? And this is exactly what 1 Thessalonians tells us. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is, those who are dead, 
that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. I mean, if there's no hope of eternal life, if there's nothing beyond the grave, when somebody dies, you know that is the absolute last time you're ever going to see that person ever again. It's over. That is a cause for a different kind of grief. But here what Paul says is, we don't grieve that way. We grieve, but not that way. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died before us in the Lord. And so that's our hope as Christians, right? We, we know that when we go to heaven, we're going to see Jesus face to face. That's the chief thing we're looking forward to. That's going to be great, but secondarily and yet still very important, we have this promise of being reunited with those who have fallen asleep before us. So those of you who have lost children, lost spouses, lost friends, who died in the Lord, trusting Jesus, the day's going to come when you're going to see him again. You're going to be reunited. That's the promise to the Christian. That's hope. So we grieve, but not as those without hope. So that's Abraham's situation here. But, but here's the thing when people die is that it's, the, it's the, one of those weirdest experiences is that you're trying to mourn, and yet there's all this business to take care of. You know, somebody's died, you've got, you got to go to the funeral home, you've got to choose a casket, you've got to find someone to write an obituary, you've got to check with relatives, and you're doing all this kind of, kind of busy work. And that's what Abraham has to do in chapter 23. What Abraham has to do is he's got to find a place to bury his wife. And so he proceeds with this task. And so we see verse 3, Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So Abraham has come to these Hittites. The Hittites are just a, a kind of a dominant group who existed, lived in the land of Canaan at the time. And um, Abraham here is acknowledging that uh, he is a, a sojourner. He is a foreigner. This is not his home. It's the Hittites' home. It's not his home. He's in the promised land. He's passing through. And so acknowledging before them, look, I'm a foreigner, but he's basically saying is I don't really have a right to anything here, and so I'm making this request. I'm asking you guys to give me some property so that I can bury my dead. And uh, throughout the passage, maybe you notice there's just a lot of courtesy, a lot of politeness. Uh, on more than one occasion, Abraham is, is bowing before the Hittites. He, he's showing respect because, again, he, he's not really entitled to anything here. But what he wants is property to bury his dead. And so verses 4 through 6, it's that phrase repeated so often. I am a sojourner, foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead. The Hittites answered, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold you this uh, from you, his tomb, to hinder you from burying your dead. I think it's four times in those verses. I think it's mentioned three or so other times in the passage, about seven, seven or eight times, burying your dead is mentioned in this chapter, hence the title of this message. There must be something important about burial, it would seem to me. Something important about 
burial. I mean, today there are different ways that we deal with the deceased, right? I mean, there are, uh, there's the option of, of cremation that some people choose, and there's the option of burial, lowering the deceased body into the grave and covering it with earth where it is left. Uh, I just want to suggest to you today that burial is better than cremation. I'm not saying that cremation is a sin. Uh, if you have had loved ones, relatives cremated, I'm not wanting you to feel guilty about that, but I, I, I do want to suggest that burial is better. And the reason why is, is this, because there is a common view of the body, even in Christian circles, but certainly uh, in uh, non-Christian circles, a common view of the body which says that the body is just something that's kind of like temporary, it, it's, it's non-essential, it's kind of like an appendage that we're kind of dragging through this life, just waiting for the day when we can shed it so that our spirit can be released and go on to bigger and better things. There's a common assumption that uh, the body is actually the problem because, well, the body breaks down, that we get aches and pains in the body, and some people attribute our sinful tendencies to the body. And so for many, this idea of being released from the body is a kind of salvation. That's salvation, leaving the body behind and letting the spirit go somewhere else. But friends, I tell you today that that is not a Christian view of the body. It's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Christians believe. The body is not an appendage. It is not non-essential. It is essential to who you are, so way God made you. God created us, souls and bodies together, and you and I who are trusting in Jesus are going to be resurrected soul and body together. God has no intention of leaving the body behind. You're getting your body back in the resurrection, and it's going to be the same body that goes into the tomb, not a brand new different body, somebody else. No, you. God's going to resurrect you your soul, your spirit, and your body. Scripture's promised this many times, Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Mortal bodies, the bodies that die and go into the grave will one day be risen from the grave. We just recited the creed, Pastor Brian led us through the Apostles' Creed. One of the very last things we said is that we believe in the resurrection of the body. You all said that. <laughs> Do you believe that? Or did you just mouth those words? I mean, that's a glorious thing to think about, isn't it? Getting your body back, the resurrection of the body. So that's one reason why I think burial is important. Of course, when Genesis 23 was written, I don't think cremation existed. I'm sure there were other ways of burial. I'm not saying that this passage is an argument against cremation, but what I'm saying is that burial seems to be a good way to honor the body. It's kind of like a way of saying when, when you're at a funeral and you look at, at a body of a deceased person, if that person is a Christian, you can say, God's not done with this body yet. This body is not just going to disappear and dissolve into eternity. No, it's going to be resurrected. So you might think, yeah, well, what about all the cremated people? Can God resurrect those bodies? Yes, he can and he will uh, for those who belong to, to Jesus. So um, cremation does not... Um, undo God's power of resurrection. But I suggest that to you uh, based on this text. Burial honors the body. So that, that's the mourning of Abraham. Uh, let's go on to the last thing, and that is 
the promises of God. Consider the promises of God. I've been talking all this time here so far about death, and you're probably thinking, man, he's only like six verses into this passage. Uh, There's a lot more that goes on here. And actually what else goes on in chapter 23 is actually not about death. It's about these negotiations that Abraham enters into with the Hittites. And these negotiations teach us something very important about God's promises. So let let me explain this to you. We'll we'll run through this pretty quickly here. Um, But we have Abraham again in verse 4 acknowledging that he's a foreigner. He's a sojourner. The land of Canaan is not his home. Yet he needs to get a burial plot. So you see the problem, right? He doesn't own any property. He doesn't have any right to any of the property. So in order to get property, to bury Sarah, he's got to negotiate with the Hittites. So in verse 4, he says, uh, give me, give me the property. And verse 5, the Hittites respond, and they, uh, or verse 6, actually, they say, you know, you're, you're a prince of God in this place, so that they're showing respect to Abraham. As we've seen throughout our study, Abraham has gained a, a high stature in the eyes of many, including those in Canaan. And so they call him the prince of God. We have all the respect for you. In fact, they say in verse 6, we're going to give you the, the choicest of all the tombs. Um, But Abraham then mentions in verse 8 that there's actually a very specific tomb that he has in mind. And so he says, if you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar. So Abraham is asking for somebody else to go to Ephron and ask him. Uh, Abraham, again, he doesn't have a place. He's uh, kind of assuming a humble posture here. He's not presuming that he can go to Ephron. He wants someone else to go kind of serve as a mediator between him and Ephron. And ask Ephron, he says, verse 9, about the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field, and I'll give you the full price for it. And so Abraham's got this Abraham's got this, this specific tomb, this specific cave that, that he would like to get for Sarah. Uh, Then in verse 10, we find that Ephron is actually listening. He's there. This is a very public event, by the way. It's at the gate of the city, and so there's a whole bunch of people here. And it says Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and he hears what Abraham is saying, and so he speaks up, and he says in verse 11, um, you know, hear me, Abraham. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it, in the sight of the sons of my people. I give it to you, bury your dead. Now, very important detail to to notice here. Abraham originally, his request was for a cave. But what Ephron is saying here is, no, my Lord, hear me, I give you the field. In other words, Ephron is saying, I own the field, I'm not just gonna give you the cave. If you want the cave, Abraham, you're gonna have to buy the field. And so it's like a subtle kind of extortion going on here on Ephron's part. He sees a deal. He's going to be able to make some money out of this thing. I'm not just going to give you the cave. I'm going to make you buy the entire field. And so what is the cost? Well, in verse 14, uh, Ephron kind of sneaks this in. He answers Abraham, and, and he says, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? You know, trying to make it sound like this is a real deal. This is no big deal. What is that? 400 shekels of silver. Actually, you read the commentators, and you find that that's quite an expensive price to pay. I mean, what Ephron is doing, again, is extorting Abraham, trying to get everything out of him that he can. But what can Abraham do? 
He has no rights. He's not entitled to anything in the promised land. So what he does in verse 16 is he listens to Ephron, and he says, okay, I'm not going to barter anymore. I'll give you your 400 shekels. Uh, Abraham is a wealthy man. He's got, he's got the money. Apparently he had it with him. And so he offers it up. They, they weigh it out to make sure that the amount is right. And Abraham pays for the land. And, and just some other details to notice here is that this is, again, it's a very public situation. It's happening at the gate of the city, it says in verse 18. The gate of the city is where all judicial proceedings would take place in an ancient city like this. It would be the equivalent of a courtroom, basically, today. This is where judicial proceedings are resolved, in the gate of the city. That's where they are. This is happening in the presence of all the witnesses, it says in verse 18. All the Hittites are there. It's a very public event. What is happening needs the consent of everybody present. So they're all watching. They're all seeing what's happening. And then in verse 16, you see that they get out the weights that are current among the merchants to weigh out the 400 shekels to make sure that the payment is validated and it is exactly what is being charged. In other words, what's happening here is that everything is made very official. This is an impeccable transaction. No one will ever be able to question whether Abraham has a right to this land because of all of these things that are happening. No one's going to be able to come back and say, hey, Abraham, you actually shortchanged Ephron. No, because we've got the, the weights out. Don't you remember that? No one's going to say, ah, that happened in a back room somewhere. No, it was right out in public, and everybody viewed it, and everybody saw it. There's no way this can be contested. Now, why is all of this important? It's because, remember the promise that God gave to Abraham at the very beginning. He said to Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to do something amazing. There's two aspects to the promise. Remember, on the one hand, it was you're going to have these descendants that are as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. These descendants are going to be enormous multitude and we see that it's fulfilled as the nation of Israel grows and it's fulfilled today in the growth of the church because Galatians 3.29 says that if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you're a son or daughter of Abraham. That's the first part of the promise. But the second part of the promise is you're going to get the land, Abraham. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. And so if you look at the end here of chapter 23, in verses 17 and 18, notice how it says it. The field in, Mach, in uh, Machpelah, which was east of Mamre, the field of the cave that was in it, all the trees that were in the field throughout the whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession. Abraham is possessing the land. Verse 20, same thing. It's repeated. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Do you see what's happening here? God fulfilled the promise to Abraham by giving Isaac as the promised child, and now God is fulfilling the promise by giving Abraham possession of the land. This is the first example of any Hebrew Jew, Jewish person, taking official ownership of land in Canaan. That, that's the point. That's what's happening. God's promises are coming true. And by burying Sarah in the land, it's Abraham's way of saying, this land is mine. You Hittites don't know it yet, but God made a promise to me and to my descendants. This land belongs to us. 
And I'm burying my wife here as a way of demonstrating that. I mean, Abraham could have gotten Sarah and gone back to Ur, the Chaldeans, right? Go back home and bury her there. Abraham doesn't do that because that's not home for him anymore. The land of Canaan is home. The promised land that God promised. Now, it's not all the land, is it? It's, it's just, it's just a, a, a field. It's just a, a small little parcel of land. But it's the beginning of greater things to come. And so here's Abraham living by faith. That, that's, that, that's the point here. Abraham is living by faith on the promises of God. He's just taken a small bit now, but he knows that there are greater things to come. Hebrews 11 tells us this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That is, Abraham was looking ahead to greater things. What he was possessing here in the moment is a small thing, but he was looking ahead to greater things, trusting God's promise. And friends, that is just such a beautiful picture of the Christian life. That's what we're called to do as Christians. We walk through this life taking small bits of what God has promised, but always in the assurance that greater things are coming. And we might not see many of the things that we're hoping for and longing for in this life, but God's promises are still true. And so I think the way to sum this up is this is the Christian life, living in the present based on what is promised in the future. That's what you and I are called to. Live in the present based on what is promised in the future. I know you want to be done with your struggle with sin, and so do I. You want to be finished with it. You're tired of dealing with your temper and your pride and your lusts. There's a promise that one day that's going to happen, but probably not in this life. You've got to wait for it. It's something that's coming in the future. I know you want to see justice done on the earth. You want to see injustices corrected. It's not going to happen in this life. It's going to happen later in the future. I know you want to see every knee bow to Jesus and acknowledge him as Lord. It's going to happen, but not in this life. And I know you long for the day when you don't have to anymore say goodbye to loved ones. I look forward to that day too. Promise isn't for us in this life, but it is coming in the next life. So friends, here's our task as Christians, as Abraham. Walk by faith, not by sight. Walk by trust in what God has promised, not by what we see in our circumstances. You know, ultimately, it's not really so important what others say about you at your funeral, is it? I mean, that's not really the most important thing. What's the most important thing to consider is what is God going to say on the day of your death? And if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you put your faith in him and his life, death, and resurrection from the dead, and you are walking through this life by faith, here's the assurance that one day God's going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the best thing anything, uh, any of us could long to hear. And it's promised for all those who trust Jesus in this life. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for teaching us through your word. We thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you for life beyond the grave. Uh, Lord, help us as we seek 
to walk by faith, to not be overwhelmed by circumstances, but to be mindful always of what you have promised, that those promises would fill us with joy and confidence as we continue to walk in faithfulness to you. Help us, Lord. We need it. We pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.